He's got a beautiful backswing. Dad, oh, he got all of that one. Oh my gosh, that is amazing. Lay up with an iron into the hazard. Well, that wasn't quite what I meant, you know. What is good, everybody? Welcome into the 73rd Hole Podcast, the official podcast of Golf Oklahoma. Sam Humphreys, Taylor Williams, Jim Woodward with you as always. And guys, we have a lot to get into today, but we have to start with the massacre at Kapalua, which, I mean, guys, I, I can't remember the last time that Colin Morikawa had this big of a disappointment in his career. And guys, he was even asked after the tournament, you know, was this the biggest disappointment, question mark? And he even filled in the blanks and said, of my career, question mark? He said, yeah, I really can't remember another time when I felt like this, guys. And so John Rahm shoots 10 under. That's a 63, par 73 at Kapalua. He finishes at 27 under to beat Colin Morikawa by two shots. Colin Morikawa had a six-shot lead to start the day and got it to seven and was nine shots ahead of Rahm at one point in the final round, guys. But where I really felt like this round took a turn, or really never took a turn. It, it, it just started bad for Colin Morikawa, but especially on the back nine was the fact that Colin Morikawa totally lost his short game, not only the putting, but especially around the greens in round four, T-Dub losing 2.18 shots around the greens while John Rahm was chipping and rolling the rock and, and lights out for John Rahm around the greens and on the greens. I think that that's where John Rahm really won this golf tournament and kept applying pressure to Colin Morikawa. And what did he do? Colin Morikawa cracked, right, T-Dub? I mean, guys, he absolutely fell apart. I couldn't believe what I was watching on that back nine. I mean, Morikawa, on, on the ninth hole, he had a seven-footer to, to make birdie and essentially go up what would have been eight shots at the time. And even with that missed putt, I went back and I looked at the, the winning percentage possibilities. He had a 97% chance to win, even after not making that birdie putt. And Rahm, at the, the equivalent, had like a 1.2% chance to win. But where it really changed massively was whenever uh, Morikawa made that bogey on 14 and Rom was able to make that eagle on 15. Uh, really jumped their percentages way up. Morikawa went down to only a 60-something percent favorite. Rom jumped all the way to 40%, which made an absolute massive difference because then at that point they were tied. And what, he, what I saw in particular was, and they were talking about a little bit on the Golf Channel, was Morikawa's been trying to get a little bit of a, a different chipping release going on. Everyone remembers how, what happened with Tiger's chipping when he had the yips and how he was really focusing on how he was releasing the club. And people are like, well, why are you why are you worried about that? But it's so very important, especially dealing with different types of grass. And, and Woody, whenever he got into that end of the grain on this Bermuda shot, especially coming down the stretch, you could really tell that he did not trust what he was uh, applying to his skill set. That is a, very true. And I, I mean, that's really observant on your part, T-Dub, because Pitching the golf ball, tipping the golf ball with the grain against you, with you, is a major difference. And I still, guys, when it gets right down to it, that's what we always talk about with our buddy Victor. Until you're under the gun, any new motion you're putting together, it works pretty good when there's not a lot of stress. Just like his putting stroke looks so good with the work he's been doing with his new teacher. 
But when you put that variable of that, oh golly, I hate to call it choking, but it is it is the term we use. You get that much stress and you get those nerves going. Even the best motion that you think that you trust, all of a sudden you don't trust. And you saw that in him yesterday. As this lead slowly evaporated, you could see the trust in his game slowly evaporate too, right up to the point that it just completely went off the cliff. Yeah, guys, and Colin Morikawa joins a, a pretty long list of guys that have blown six-shot leads on the PGA Tour. No one has ever blown a seven-shot lead headed into the final round, which is pretty surprising as long as the PGA Tour has been around. T-Dub, do you have all those names right in front of you that have blown six-shot leads that Colin Morikawa unfortunately joins? I do, actually, yes. And uh, there was eight other players in PGA Tour history that have accomplished this great feat of blowing a six-shot lead. So I'll go ahead and read them off from oldest to, to most recent. Back in 1928, you had Bobby Crookshank, who in the 1928 Florida Open shot an 80 in the final round, so he lost that. In 1969, Gary Brewer at the Danny Thomas Diplomat Classic shot 73. And then in 1983, Hal Sutton at the Anheuser-Busch Classic, that is a hell of a tournament, shot 77. And then the, the most famous one of all these guys is Greg Norman, 1996 Masters. He shot 78 and uh, lost by, what was that, five to Nick Faldo at the end of the day. What, how crazy was that? Then we have uh, 2005 Wachovia Championship, which was uh, is Quill Hollow. That was Sergio Garcia that year. He shot 72, so really not that bad. He must have got chased down by someone. The last three here. On the list, Spencer Levine, uh, 2012 Waste Management Phoenix shot 75. Dustin Johnson, 2017 at the uh, HSBC Champions, that was the tournament in um, in China, I believe, shot 77. And uh, Scotty Scheffler, at, at the most recent, the 2022 Tour Championship, shot 73. But a little bit of an asterisk on that one, Sam, just because he started the tournament with a, right. uh, a, a score. He was two or three shots up on, on essentially everyone in the field. That's right. And the one thing that's different about Colin Morikawa yesterday is he's the only guy off of that list that shot under par in the final round and still lost his six-shot lead, guys, which leads me to my next question. Is Kapalua becoming obsolete, or is it just one of those places where you're going to have to go low? It doesn't really bother you um, that the scores are low because it still separates guys, as we saw with John Rahm yesterday shooting 10 under and Colin Morikawa only shooting one under. What do y'all go to you first on that? Well, you know, Rahm, he's got 59 under for the last two tournaments there. Okay, so it was almost destiny that he could, he should win. Shooting 59 under for two tournaments, wow. What, what uh, exact, so, it's actually 60. He was 33 under last year and 27 under this year. Oh, my gosh, 60 under makes it even more. Uh, so I think those guys know. I, I, there's, there's certain golf courses that you play on the PGA Tour where I think you, you almost know no lead is safe. And a lot of times somebody would ask me, would you rather be playing a real hard golf course with a lead or a real easy golf course with a lead? And I've always thought I'd rather be on a real hard one. And the reason why is par still means something. At Kapalua, par does not really mean anything. And that was a perfect example of it yesterday. Yeah, I agree with you. you want to play on a, a hard golf course whenever you have a lead. Absolutely, Woody, because it makes it so much harder for them to chase you. And, and just to, to go on Kapalua, 
including this year. I'll read off the, the most recent winning scores there. This year, 27 under, 34 under, 25 under, 14 under, 23, 24, 22, 30, 21. So, I mean, every single year they just tear this place apart with the exception of the 14 under year, and that was when the wind blew just absolutely ridiculous. And that's the only really defensive course has, guys. But in all fairness, it is the only par 73 course they do play on the PGA Tour, so that adds a little bit of an asterisk on there to say, like even more Akawa yesterday being able to still shoot under par shooting 72. Like I didn't feel watching him at really, even on the front nine that he was going to shoot under par because that course is so easy. So, but yeah, Sam, I don't think it's necessarily becoming obsolete. I think it's uh, it's kind of a unique thing to have, especially at the start of the year, because you can just have the guys go absolutely nuts out there making birdies. It's just definitely not something I want to see in a major championship or anything like that, but once or twice a year, it doesn't bother me that much. It doesn't really bother me either, and if they're going to go to Hawaii, where else are they going to go, right? I mean, there there's enough room out there for this tournament, and we, we talk a lot about that. Like, so you couldn't go to Princeville and Kauai. It's just too small, and it's, even the island is too small to host the people to have a PGA Tour event. I don't know where else you would have it. Anyways, the bad news of this week, guys, we got to talk about one more thing. That's Xander Shoffley withdrawing from Kapalua this week, the Century Tournament uh, tournament of Qualifiers. By the way, we need to get into that, too. Max Homa is calling for a name change for the golf tournament, just like we are. Um, but Xander Shoffley played the first round, then ends up withdrawing during the second round, guys. He was hitting it way right. It looked like he couldn't finish his swing. His back looked like it was, whether it was spazzing or, or what else. I, I'm not a back doctor, guys, but it just looked like his back was uh, giving him a lot of pain. What were your thoughts on what you saw from Xander? I hope he gets healthy because he's a guy that was playing really solid golf to start the 2023 season, and I, I look forward to him having a big year. But if he has those back issues linger at the start of the year, that's not a good sign for the rest of the year, right? No, it absolutely isn't. I mean, back pain is is probably the worst thing that you can deal with when it comes to the golf swing. It's uh, I've dealt with it. I've known numerous people who have, and it, it can be career-ending to a lot of people, and I hope that's not the case for Shuffle. I don't think that it is by any stretch. And we talked about it in our previous show that he had to withdraw from the uh, the pro-am. So, I mean, this it's not shocking by any stretch. Him going out and giving it a try is, is valiant enough, and I, I haven't looked deep, too deep into this, but I'm sure by him playing one round that he gets the uh, the minimum of whatever the the, uh, the purse was, even just for withdrawing. It's just not going to be official money. So there may have been a little incentive to get one round in there, but uh, I don't know, Woody. This is something that uh, until we see him get back in healthy and uh, playing some pretty good golf, I'm not going to be able to uh, trust pick and shot play in, uh, in any pools, or especially the one that done pool, right? Yeah, yeah. Backs. The back is, is the most scary of all. You could see Valatoris at the start of this tournament had a lot of rust, a lot of rust. Now, as the week wore on, he got he got to playing pretty good. But boy, any time at that young of age, you've got back issues. That to me is one of the most scary things as a golf professional. There's a lot of injuries as far as golf goes, but back are the scariest to me because they can come out of nowhere and strike again. And so once you've got that that uh, oh, that black cloud hanging over you of having a back injury, I'm not sure it ever goes away. 
No, I, I agree with you on that, Woody. Uh, as far as the good news goes from this golf tournament, we'll talk a lot about Colin Morikawa blowing the lead, but John Rahm still shot double digits under par in the final round. And guys, John Rahm really impressed me this week because he lost almost half a shot on the field strokes gained approach, but got the job done with the putting and the chipping and that's where he really struggled, especially at the start of last year, why he was up there in tournaments but not winning tournaments. How big of a silver lining is it to see John Rahm really rolling the rock here, especially early in the year, on some tough greens to putt on, T-Dub? No, Rahm's putting has been absolutely exceptional. I, I went back and whenever you look at the analytics, he ended his this, and he ended 2022 putting exceptionally well. But I thought a lot of that had to do with him just playing back back in Europe and being more accustomed to those slower greens because he was gaining a shot and a half, sometimes even two shots on the field putting. But he continued it this week as well, and he's absolutely figured something out when it comes to that putting, boys. And he's going to be absolutely lethal because, like you mentioned, Sammy, lost uh, lost strokes to approach this week. That's not going to be a, a common trend for John Rahm going forward. So, yeah, it's uh, it, it look for him to have an absolutely immaculate year if he keeps us going. And just want to want to encourage people who, who play golf and get discouraged, especially when they start early rounds. Tom Rahm bogeyed the first hole yesterday and still shot 10 under par. <laughs> he played his last 17 holes. 11 under are you freaking kidding me that is absolutely unbelievable Woody it's it's uh I get that it's an easy golf course but I don't care if you're playing on a putt-putt course or, or playing the burples teeing up next to the green if you shoot 11 <laughs> under for 17 holes you're doing something right and Woody one more stat there <laughs> yeah. before before you bring up John Rahm um the the other stat that I was going to bring up is he lost almost half a shot strokes gained approach and he was the only guy in the top 10 to even lose shot strokes gained approach that proves how well he was putting and chipping uh, but we've said all along, if you really want to practice something in golf and to improve your score, no matter what level of player you are, chipping and putting is going to do it faster than anything else. So this is very obvious with this golf tournament. You know, guys, the one thing that I noticed, if you look at John Rahm over the last two, three months, that's one of the reasons why I know Sam, you and I, in our picks for the coming year, had Rahm in a number of places that we thought he was going to win mm -hmm. this this if i'm another tour player it scared me to death watching this guy because he made it clear too boys that he is not a big fan of the world ranking points and nor should he be he's won three times in the last two months okay and yet he is only fourth in the world ranking if you look at John Rahm over the last three three months, for sure, four months, how is this guy not pushing to be the number one player in the world? It's, I'm, I'm mind-warped on this. This screams to me how stupid these world rankings are. For this guy to only be fourth in the world, crazy. Let's talk about another guy up there, an official world golf ranking that wasn't there we had Rory McIlroy not in attendance guys at Kapalua for the first elevated event that Rory McIlroy fought so hard to get right to have these tournaments where you win what 2.7 million dollars and all of this elevated event stuff and 
for the first elevated event that they have here at Kapalua, Rory McIlroy is nowhere to be found. What were your thoughts about that? I think that's absolutely ridiculous on Rory's part, T-Dub. It's something I hadn't really thought about, Sam, but it's an interesting point because you would think of the big spokesman that he is, he's been over the past year that he, he would have been there to support, as you said, the first elevated event that they've had. But, I mean, at the end of the day, I think what they've said is is that you're allowed to miss one event uh, before, I guess because if you miss more than one, it cuts into your, your PIP money that you can get at the end of the year, which is, which is interesting because Tiger's going to win the PIP again, but he's not going to play hardly any, maybe not at all, any elevated events besides the majors. So, I mean, are they going to cut out his PIP money because he only plays so many times? I, I don't necessarily think that's the case. So, I don't know, Woody. It seems one of those things that maybe – they apply losing pit money to some players, but uh, are they really going to take Rory's pit money if uh, he decides later in the year that he doesn't want to play another one of these elevated events? Great question there. Um, I think that the, the thing you always got to put, when you when you put Tiger into any equation, there's an asterisk. It, it, he doesn't count. Okay, so I agree with what you say. They say they're allowed to miss one. If they miss more than one, it is stated in that, that category the way they've written it is you will not be involved in the PIP if you miss one or, one or more of these elevated events. So if you miss two, I don't know. We'll have to wait to see. Isn't the PGA Tour really based on whatever Jay Monahan wants to do or whatever they tell Jay Monahan to do? So um, I hate when you put a rule out there, though, guys, and then you don't follow up. I mean, if the speed limit is 55 and I'm going 80, I'm going to tell the cop next time, well, you know what, I, I'm i a good dude. I get to, can you just let this pass? Because that is really a law, right? Well, <laughs> yeah, it is. So what are we going to do? Are we going to really stand by the rules or are we not going to stand by the rules? If, if Rory misses one because of injury, that's a different thing. But if he just skips another one, I don't know, guys. I think you got a hold of the rules. Well, I don't think the rules even matter to Rory McIlroy because, number one, he holds all the leverage against the PGA Tour. And number two, he had a guaranteed $200,000 payday to go to Kapalua, and he passed that up. What that tells me is that he is getting paid so much money under the table by the PGA Tour right now that $200,000 is just a drop in the bucket, guys. It it just proves my point that the PGA Tour has to pay these guys even extra aside from what we're talking about with PIP money, T-Dub. All right, there's just so many layers that you, you could look at this. And who knows, maybe he just doesn't like playing Kapalua. Maybe he doesn't like this time of year. Maybe he didn't want to go to Hawaii. Who, who knows whatever reason it is, but who knows? Like I said, the rules are there. You can only miss one event. He, he may not miss another elevated event the rest of the year, and if not, good for him. And I'm going to trust Rory on whatever he's doing that's going to be best for his game because looking back at it, going back to the FedEx St. Jude, he's played uh, seven tournaments, and he's not finished outside of fourth in any of those. So whatever he's doing, he needs to rest up, played a lot of golf, at the end of the year, I understand that. And uh, I like you, you mentioned, you guys were both highly on Rom in our season prediction show. I'm very high on Rory, so hopefully he does lead that way, even though I uh, may question some of the things that he does just to be the spokesman of the PGA Tour. Yeah, and I agree with you that it's probably what's best for Rory McIlroy, that he skipped this event. But don't talk out of both sides of your mouth and say, all these guys are doing what's best for them, and I'm doing what's best for the PGA Tour, and then come out there and skip the first elevated event because you don't need the money, Woody. I don't know. It just it, it 
it's sour grapes to me. And, and let me tell you something. It's going to get crazy, guys, over the next few years. We think they've got a lot of money now. It's going to really go nuts. Uh, over the next few years, especially if Lib stays in the picture and the PGA Tour has to compete against them. So, Rory McIlroy, you said it best, Sam. He's an independent contractor who's going to do whatever the heck he wants to do. So, what I'm curious at is the three events all these top stars are going to play in, you know, because there's also a stipulation. I know you guys know this, but they have to play in three other events besides the elevator event. Where are they going to pick? That's going to be the most interesting thing to watch as the year rolls on to me. What events are all these elevated players going to play in that are not the elevated events? That'll be fun to watch to see where they do play. No, it definitely will, guys. Woody, why don't you go ahead and tell us about our friends at Quail Creek Bank? Quail Creek Bank is the bank for you. No matter what your needs are, they're the bank to go to. They have no ATM fees. They have great people that work with you as far as getting small business loans, home loans. And what I just said, you're going to talk to somebody that not only is going to listen, they're going to remember who you are. They're going to know you by your name. They're going to know your family by your name. They're a locally owned business. And that's what makes them a little different. Banks that are locally owned, not not a lot of those anymore. You know what I'm saying? The big conglomerates are taking over. Not at, not at Quell Creek. You want a friendly bank. You want a bank to know your name. You want to talk to a living person every time you get on the phone or go in. Go to Quell Creek Bank. They're located right there at 122nd and May. Hey, 2023, if it's the year you're looking for a bank, go to Quell Creek. No doubt about it, guys. I'm watching the uh, the Kapalua Century Tournament of Champions last night, and I see Quail Creek Bank, their commercial pop up right there on the Golf Channel. And I like the fact that they put a face to their bank. They showed all their employees, and they all look like they're having a great time helping Oklahomans. So if you're in Oklahoma City, definitely look at changing to Quail Creek Bank, guys, the last thing we want to talk about about Kapalua, Max Homa brought up the fact that it's not necessarily the Tournament of Champions anymore, T-Dub, and we brought that fact up that it's mainly the Tournament of Qualifiers. What should this tournament be called, T-Dub? <laughs> they are going to have to try to do some different rebranding name. There's no doubt about it. I will say that if they didn't have the, this rule, right, I think they said that 10 players or something along those lines, maybe it's 12, got in, got in the field because they didn't win a tour event last year, but if if they didn't do that, it would have been a smaller field than the tour championship. So I, I absolutely agree that they had to do something to change it up because there are so many ways that it could have worked out, right? If you have multiple guys win five events in a year, then they decide that they don't want to play here like Rory, then you could have a field potentially that has only 20 people in it. So I don't know, Woody. They definitely had to change the criteria, I think, in my opinion, to make it a somewhat not just a kind of joke of a turn, not to make it a more glorified hero world challenge or even a worse hero world challenge at that fact, but they definitely have to change the name because it is not the tournament of champions by any stretch anymore. No, they'll have to rebrand it. And, and what you guys are saying is so spot on. The last thing you want to do is start the year of the PGA schedule with 30 guys, 25 guys, whatever that number would be. I like what they're doing. If, if you're, if you finished in the top 30, and you're playing in the FedEx Cup Finals, you should be in that golf tournament. Even if you had one, the odds are you probably have won a golf tournament if you're there, but you might not have. So 
either that or you take that elevated group of guys, whatever that number is. I think they're going to say 60. You guys might want to help me on that. They should all be in that golf tournament. Uh, Figure it out, but make darn sure that you have a field of at least, I would say, 76 players. T-Dove, I'm curious to get your thoughts on this because our man Colby Powell sent us a text saying, we screwed up by not running big dogs out there this week in the one-and-done considering it was the first elevated event. And a lot of people did pick John Rahm in our one-and-done pool. And we both picked people that were kind of middle of the pack, little lower-ranked guys. I had Harmon and Power. They were both middle of the pack. Now, do you think that people should be running their big dogs out for these elevated events? Should they be running out for the elevated events? Absolutely. Um, should they be necessarily running them out the very first week that's it, that just came after New Year's whenever you don't know how, what people have been doing over the holidays? I think absolutely not because like our man Colby probably picked out uh, John Rom and Justin Thomas. Okay, yeah, his Rom picked work, but his JT pick was absolutely horrible. He finished 25th. Right. So you want to use – you want to use the rest of the year? Okay, let's say you do have the big dog philosophy, right, Sam? Let's say you ran out Justin Thomas and, and Cantley. Cantley finished 16th. Okay, so you had a 16th and a 25th, and you used two of the best six, seven players in the world. Or let's say you ran out even Scotty Sheffler. Scotty Sheffler finished 7th. I mean, that's not a, a great abundance of money at all. So it, there's really a lot of luck that goes into it. But but based off of the, the mathematics and what you should do, what gives you the best chance, over the course of the year, you say the best players for courses that they play the best, but also where the most money is because I, I get it. Yes, it is an elevated event, a big purse, but with it being such a small field, there's a discrepancy in how much players get once they get down to the, the seventh and 10th range. It's not as much as even what, uh, what the other elevated events would be. So yeah, I would definitely, uh, want to say that our strategy was right, Sam, but if you were cur- courageous enough to run ROM or even more cow out, you're not really sweating it too bad because it ended up working in your favor fairly decently because the odds of you picking Ron Memorial the rest of the year where they get more than 2.7, 1.5 million is decently slim. No, that's true, but I would say that I got probably more money out of Seamus Power and Brian Harmon that I would get the rest of the year, right? So, and then I think that in majors or some of these other elevated events with bigger fields, I like John Rahm's chances more than I like a, a guy in the lower uh, lower in the rankings, right? So I think it could go both ways there. Um, as far as one and done goes, guys, let's go ahead and take a break here on the 73rd hole. We'll talk about PGA Tour players playing in Saudi Arabia this year. We'll also talk about who the Masters is inviting this year. Spoiler alert, it's going to be a bigger field at Augusta National this year than we've seen in the past, guys. Stay with us here on the 73rd hole, the official podcast of Golf Oklahoma. When something the size of a golf ball hits your roof, you need to call McRae Roofing. McRae Roofing is Oklahoma's designer roofing service specialist. For years, Jeff McRae and the experienced team at McRae Roofing and Exteriors have served fellow Oklahomans by helping them with their roofing needs. McRae Roofing uses only top quality materials and professional crews to make sure that each job is done right so it will give you the years of service, security, and protection you need from the unpredictable Oklahoma weather. McRae Roofing offers residential and commercial roofing, ventilation services, and custom copper designs. McRae Roofing is dedicated to exceeding the homeowner's expectations. It's not just a roof. It is your home's crowning glory. Call McRae Roofing today at 405-692-4000. 
That's 405-692-4000. Make sure to also visit their website at mcrayroofing.com. That's M-C-R-A-Y roofing.com. Don't get caught with a leaking roof. Contact McRae Roofing for your free inspection today. And we are back rolling along here on the 73rd Hole Podcast, the official podcast of Golf Oklahoma. Sam Humphreys, Jim Woodward, Taylor Williams with you for this second segment. And guys, before we get started, I do want to tell everybody to go to GolfOklahoma.org. Kim McLeod and Chris Swafford will be the place to get all of your college golf news in the state of Oklahoma coming up this spring. You do not want to miss that. If you're an OSU fan or an OU fan, that is the place to go to find out how the Sooners are doing, how the Cowboys are doing this year in 2023, guys. Uh, I enjoyed watching the Kapalua coverage. There were a couple new nuances that I saw, whether it be the drones on 18 to kind of show elevation change because Kapalua, guys, is one of those courses where you can't really comprehend how big these slopes are and the elevation change is um, and you can't really comprehend that when you're watching it on TV kind of the same thing as Augusta National T-Dub what were some other things that you liked about the coverage and maybe liked about Kapalua well I I love the drone shots I thought those were absolutely magnificent and it's going to be hard for them to do that on a lot of courses where it has the same effect as it does Kapalua, but I still think it can definitely have a lot of relevance when it comes to uh, the future of, of golf coverage, just how technology takes over. And just the, you mentioned earlier, Sam, when we, we were questioning if Kapalua is a good place for them to play. And a great point. Where else are they going to play? There's a lot of other good courses in Hawaii, but not that don't have the great scenic views that Kapalua does, and that's what adds to the great coverage of it. So, yeah, I think that there was a lot that, that it brings to it. But one thing that this course does unveil it exploits a major flaw in the rules of golf that we've talked about numerous times on this show, but I got to rant for just a little bit on it. I almost forgot about it because of the massive choke job that Colin Morikawa showed. I almost forgot all about it, but <laughs> it's, it's, it's so crucial, guys. With all these massive slopes that you have, and especially when you see in a lot of collection areas, what happens? It collects every single ball that's hit there. So what happens? Over the course of a tournament, there's thousands of divots that are just placed right there, hundreds of divots that are hitting the same spot, especially because guys go there and practice rounds too. And hit, are you getting sand divots? I mean, Sam, we've been questioning it the whole time, and I want to ask Woody too because he played on the PJ Tour and how many times he had to deal with this. How ridiculous is it? You can be in the middle of the fairway or even a spot that you're in the fairway, and you have to hit out of a divot. It's ludicrous to me. Woody, what are your thoughts on that? Because I totally agree. I've always thought that's the worst rule in golf, that you can stripe one right down the middle and be in the middle of a divot. I, I have to agree with you guys on this one. I, I, I consider this ground under repair because if you really look at it, you're being penalized for hitting a good golf shot. Well, that's not, I mean, that is wrong. That is wrong in so many ways. And over the years, uh, the one I go back to, one of the most uh, obvious ones that cost somebody was St. Stewart at the Open at the Olympic Club. When Lee Jansen beat him, he drove it in a divot on the back nine, early in the back nine. I think it was 12 or 13. And uh, it, it, it did it cost him the golf tournament? Well, a lot of people can argue it didn't, but it didn't help. And so 
it's really wrong in so many ways. They've changed so many rules. What would be so hard about changing that rule? Ball roll going to do it. You just take free drop. That's what should be going on. Uh, shame on the United States Golf Association, the RNA, uh, the bodies of golf that they haven't figured that out. And my point is they changed the rule on the greens to where if you accidentally touch your ball after you picked up your ball mark, you just place it back like you're on the tee box, right? The whole Dustin Johnson rule. And the last time I can remember something like this really happening was Paul Casey at the Players' Championship. Now, he wasn't in a divot, but he was in someone else's pitch mark after he striped a drive on 16 coming down the stretch of the Players' Championship, and all of a sudden, he has to hit out of a literal hole. It just doesn't make much sense to me. The thing, Woody hit it spot on, right nail on the head, that you have to reward good shots. And to me, when you're... You know, you're in a divot in the middle of the fairway. That's counterintuitive, T-Dub. So I agree with you. 100% it is. And the biggest thing about it, in my opinion, yes, you reward good shots. But also, too, that you're not everyone is playing the same golf course at that point. Someone who plays in the group in front of you makes that divot, and you drive it into their divot. You hit the exact same drive, and the, the result of the next show you have to hit is absolutely crazy, catastrophically different. And even more, Cal won the fifth hole yesterday. Uh, the, the long par five, he drove it into a divot, and he had to aim left of the green because he wasn't even able to take it on because of it. So it's absolutely ludicrous. And in all honesty, I remember it like it was yesterday, saying the exact moment you talked with Paul Casey, and it was a little bit different because the pitch mark, but the principle is still the same. And the fact that it happened in the biggest tournament that the PGA Tour claims, or it is the PGA Tour's biggest tournament, it's it's an absolute joke. And uh, the fact that it hasn't been changed at this point, like Woody said, is uh, it, it honestly blows my mind at this point. And T-Dub, it's accentuated at a place like Cal- like you said, with all the all the slopes and all of that, where the balls roll into the same general areas, and so we saw it a lot more this week, which is which is why you brought it up, uh, guys. Let's change subjects completely here. Let's go to uh, an interesting story that I saw on the Golf Channel that the PGA Tour says they have granted media releases for quote a few members of the PGA Tour who have requested to play the Saudi International. Guys, I mean, (laughs) in this climate, for the PGA Tour, after all they have said about the Saudi Arabian government and that being the reason why they stand against Liv, it's not the fact that Liv has come out and is a great competitor. They have stood on the fact that it is the politics of the situation that they disagree with and to let their players go play in the Saudi international this year is absolutely talking out of both sides of their mouth now as far as the players going we can assume it's maybe the same guys that went last year that that would be like a Xander Shoffley uh Tony Finau even a Tom Kim they went last year so maybe they're the quote-unquote few that have asked to go play in the Saudi International. But guys, I mean, this is talking out of both sides of their mouth, especially this year, but even last year when they did it. Guys, I feel like that's not talked about enough. Woody, what are your thoughts on this? This is when I, I get irritated because all these people, and even our old buddy Colby, that would, would fight about, well, it's the regime of the Saudi Arabian government. Oh, please give me a break, people. All the companies that do billions of dollars from the United States in Saudi Arabia, 
and we're going to pick on golf pros and try to make them political off of this. Guys, this irritates me more than a bad rash. I'm going to tell you, quit it. Please, if you're going to fight against Liv, and I got no problem for all these people out there that don't like Liv, don't you dare this year try to throw that political thing at me because I'll pop you one right upside the head. <laughs> it, it really is getting tiring at this point, Woody, because you can dive so in in hypo- hypocrisies. But uh, we're going down that road. And, and Sam mentioned off some names, and I had some names here, and just we'll probably list off some of the same. But yeah, some of these people that played in 2022, you have Tommy Fleetwood played, then Shane Lowry played, Xander Shoffley played, Tony Finau played, um, Thomas Peters, uh, even Tom Kim was over there. So, I mean, it's it will be so fascinating to see what players actually do end up going to play it. If uh, I saw someone tweet this, I can't remember who it was. I just thought it'd be funny. What if Rory, someone like Rory and Billy Horschel were the people that want to go? I thought that would be really funny. <laughs> that could happen. Definitely hypocritical, in my opinion, that the PGA Tour would let their players do that after all that they have said about the Saudi Arabian government. But, you know... What is going to happen? We talked about it with Rory. Everybody's going to do what's best for them. And I think that that's the thing that we've been preaching this entire time that people don't seem to understand. Um, Speaking of big tournaments in 2023, the biggest tournament, the Masters, has announced that they are inviting Kazuki Higa of Japan and Gordon Sargent of the United States. Gordon Sargent. Obviously, from Vanderbilt, won the NCAA championship individually as a freshman. So, T-Dub, that means we'll have two extra players in the Masters this year, right? They're not taking a spot away from anybody else. No, they're not. No, it's uh, the Masters has already a limited field itself. And th- th- these two additions only bump it up to, to 80 players. So it's uh, and but, but what's very fascinating is that this, they said this is the first um, – for, for Sargent, it's the first special invite by an amateur in like 21 years or something. I think Aaron Badley was the last in, in 2001. And then uh, Kazuki Higa is a, a very great player uh, from Japan. So he's uh, got a lot of potential, 27-year-old, who's uh, shown a lot of very promise over there. So uh, definitely I don't see anything wrong with this, Woody. And uh, it, the only reason it would have ever been wrong is if, let's just say a couple weeks ago, they decided not to invite the live players and then they decided to do this. That would have been the only reason I would have saw anything wrong with these two additions. Oh, I agree. I agree. It, it, as long as they're just adding them to the field. And, and you might want to put a little spin on this just for fun is both these young men are one's a freshman. Uh, I'm not sure how old the young man is from Japan. Can't be very old. 27. How old is he? 27. Okay. He was the, uh, he was the winner on the uh, Japan money tour last year. So okay. that's, uh, so he also he, has, it. he is older than what I expected, but especially the young man here from the United States, um, that the, the masters has granted that invitation. It, it, it also could be a premium a little bit, uh, getting him geared to the fact, Hey, uh, I know it sounds crazy, but you don't need to do that. Live. We're going to take care of you here. We're going to give you this special invite. Don't rush off and go chase the money. Uh, uh, let, let's keep you here. So um, I don't know what goes on behind the scenes at Augusta National. Don't want to know. Uh, but but obviously they gave this some thought, and they thought these two kids were important or these two young men were important to add to the field. So 
it doesn't bother me either way. I, I think it's a great opportunity for both of them to get a chance to play at Augusta. Yeah, no doubt about it. I think it's awesome, and I think that the Masters should start looking every year to invite the NCAA champion. I saw this from Brentley Romine on Twitter. He listed off the last 10 winners from the NCAA championship and the last 10 USAM runner up, runners up. And so let me read off the NCAA champs, the last 10. You have Sargent, you have Turk Pettit, you have Matt Wolf, you have Brock Everett, Thornberry, Aaron Wise, Bryson DeChambeau, Cameron Wilson, Max Homa, and Thomas Peters. That's the NCAA champs of the last 10 years. Now, obviously, the USAM runner-up gets to go to the Masters. Who are those guys the last 10 years? Ben Carr, Austin Greaser, Ollie Osborne, uh, Augenstein, Devin Bling, Doug Gim, Brad Dalkey, shout-out to my former roommate, Derek Bard, uh, Connors, is that right? Is that Corey Connors? Uh, and then Ollie Goss. And so, guys, my point here is... To me, I think that if you look at those lists of 10 guys, I think that you would probably give the edge to the NCAA champion who has at least had a better pro career after the fact, right, T-Dub? Yeah, I think when you list off all those names there, I think it makes a very prevalent point that uh, I, I'll be honest, I, I don't think you should take away the, the runner-up for the USAM and add the NCAA. I think you should just add the NCAA winner. It's one more player to it. That's You're right. probably going to add someone who's going to be a very accomplished tour player when it's all said and done, more than likely major champion, or at least uh, probably 30 to 40% chance that they'll that, end up winning a major. So it's, uh, yeah, I, I think it's something that that'll probably happen when it's all said and done, I think, over the course that maybe it won't happen next year. But over the course of time, I think we'll start seeing this more prevalent and I think we'll see it more prevalent because they set the precedent now because I think the only reason they really gave it to Sargent is because he was a freshman and he won and with how great these junior players are coming out he's not going to be the last freshman to to win the NCAA title so I, this isn't going to be the last time that we see this happen Woody in my opinion. I can always look back on my career guys and it wasn't a fantastic career by any stretch of imagination but there were on two occasions where I came within one shot of getting to play in the Masters. Okay oh, well man. That would have made my career to just get a chance to play the Masters. And I think that's what's so cool about inviting these amateurs. And we don't know what's going to happen in their careers. They might win the NCAA and then never get on the tour for all that goes. You never know. But to get a chance to play at Augusta and play the Masters, I think they should let more amateurs, younger players in. I know that a lot of people would say, no, 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 what, you don't want that. But I think you do. I think because it would make their lives. It would make their careers as far as golf goes. No matter where they go from there, they would have played at the Masters. That's, well, holy cow. Like I said, if I, could, if I could reach back and change anything, I would want one shot in one of those two events and get me a, either a win on the PGA Tour or a higher finish in the Open, which would have got me in. No, guys, I totally agree that it's a great decision by Fred Ridley and Augusta National to invite the NCAA winner. Uh, guys, we don't have much more to get into today. We're at the Sony Open on Honolulu later this week. On Thursday, we'll have our preview for the Sony Open come out here on the 73rd hole on Wednesday. Hideki Matsuyama trying to defend his championship there guys 
what tournament do you like watching more? Do you like watching Kapalua more? Do you like watching the Sony Open more? And Woody, do you have any stories about maybe playing in Hawaii on the PGA Tour? Oh, gosh. Well, yeah. Um, well, you know, I always liked uh, – I never got qualified to play at Kapalua for the Tournament of Champions because there was actually a Tournament of Champions at that time, and I, <laughs> I never got there. <laughs> but uh, I did get to play the Sony Open on more than one occasion, and – I used to love that event, first off, because what I'd always do is right after Christmas, I'd head out to the desert in Palm Springs where my sponsor was, had a house, and he had great golf courses that we would play out there, and I would practice and practice and practice. Boy, I'd be excited about getting to go. So, and the Sony Open was always the start of the year, so... I I had a number of good finishes at the at the Sony Open. The the funniest one I can recall was I had uh, been out there on tour. It seemed like it was a, it was starting my third year, and up to that point, I had never really had a you know really what I'd call a close relationship with uh, one individual on tour by the name of Curtis Strange. Curtis Strange was always very aloof. I had played with him a couple of times, and my rookie in my second year but he was always just you know very aloof and so i'm sitting in my locker in the sony open my third year and strange comes walking by and he goes hey what are you how are you doing well i kind of looked up and i went well i'm good curtis uh how are you doing he goes uh, i'm doing great i had a great off season how about you did you do any hunting I said, yeah, I had a good hunting season, and uh, but thanks for asking. And he starts to turn and walk away, and I said, hey, wait a minute. He goes, yeah. And I said, you mind if I ask you something? He goes, no, go ahead. And I said, um, Curtis, we kind of played golf the first couple of years out here, and you've been cordial, but you've been far from my friend. You really didn't care whether I went hunting or not. Um what what's the deal, buddy? Have I changed my haircut, or do you like me better, or what did I do? And he goes, you know, Woody, let me just tell you something about the PGA Tour. And I said, okay. He said, you know how many guys get to come out here for one year? And I looked at him, I said, no, nah, nah, I don't know. Nah. He goes, not many. We're really? No? I take that back. He says, I've seen a lot of guys one year. He said, how many guys do you think I see after two years? And I kind of could see where he was going with this. And I said, uh-huh. And he goes, this is your third year, third year in a row, right? And I said, yeah. He goes, well, guess what? You belong now. That's and a cool kinda, story. I kinda, a man, I looked at him, I go, well, thank you. And he goes, you remember now, you remember the fraternity now. And what's funny, guys, is after I'd left the tour and came back and played in some PGA championships as a club pro and then went out and played some champions tour events, let me tell you something, Curtis Strange couldn't have been nicer to me every time I saw him after that. And not only him, but a number of those guys out there. So it, where it was kind of a, a – I thought it was kind of um, almost mean in a way, but I also understood if they don't want to get to know you. They could care less about you. But if you do it enough times, they kind of think you belong, and they make you part of the fraternity. So – um, it seemed like that week I finished in the top 10 at Hawaii because I felt pretty doggone special. That That <laughs> so, is really cool. No, that is cool. That's kind of what I expected Curtis Strange to kind of be like, you know, the famous interview he did with Tiger Woods where – 
Tiger comes out and says, you know, my expectation is to win every single tournament <laughs> that I play in. And Curtis Strange looks at him and goes, you'll learn. You'll learn, young buck. You know, <laughs> and all that. Yeah. He's just kind of like the old school, you know, fraternity guy. That's kind of what he yeah. is. What he right? Yeah. Yeah. He was, uh, everybody would look at Curtis Strange and think he was kind of an ass. And I'm sure he can be. I, I, I'm sure he can be. He was never that way to me. And and that that day in that locker room, in a way, uh, it changed my perspective in a, in a big way. It made me understand him a little bit more. That uh, uh, I guess at that time, you got to remember, this is after Curtis had just won back to back U.S. Open. He was regarded as one of the best players in the world at that time. And for him to put that perspective for me and for him to take the time to even do that i was like yeah this guy's a pretty good dude he, he's not all that bad i mean woody i i i get that it was I, it's not cool that he was a jackass to you before the fact but it was nice that he ended up being after the fact but whenever you play with someone like that who, who's not very friendly to you at first but then is friendly does it make it easier to play with when you're playing in a tournament Oh, I think so. I, I would, I would honestly tell you guys, and, and and you all have already done it in little little bit of golf that you all have played. You're going to play a lot more. Every once in a while, you get paired with somebody that you kind of like you idolize, and it's tough. I mean, it is really difficult the first couple of times because human nature, you want to try to show off or you want to make them think, well, I, I belong here, and so those guys were intimidating as heck to me. Now. The younger guys coming out nowadays, I don't think they're intimidated much by anybody anymore. But back in that time, you you were always, when you got paired with certain guys for the first time, the first time I played with Greg Norman, I was scared to death. I mean, I really was uh, because he was a god. He was Adonis out there. So uh, there were certain pairings that I got that I really enjoyed, and there were some that I really regretted. but. I will tell you this to a man, guys, the best guys to play with when I was on tour were the successful players, the ones that were superstars or near superstars. The guys that were the hardest ones for me to play with were the guys battling to keep their cards. Those were the guys that were kind of the assholes and the guys that were not fun to play with because they're trying to keep their job. And, and they were struggling, most of them, to keep their job. The guys that were successful already knew they were good, weren't worried about you beating them for sure, and they, they didn't really care. They were a lot more friendly. I know that sounds stupid, but that's the way it was with me. No, Woody, I think that's great perspective that you give there that, you know, some people think about those things and even PGA Tour players think about those things that, you know, sometimes they play up to the competition they're playing with, down to the competition they're playing with. Some guys are uh, easy to play with, put you, you know, in a more comfortable position while you're out, out there on the golf course. And golf is a mental game. I think that when you're comfortable out there, that there's a lot to be said for that guys so we're done here today on the 73rd hole podcast but we'll be back in a couple days to preview the sony open in honolulu and guys be thinking about your favorite hawaiian island because i have a lot of strong thoughts i want to give on my favorite hawaiian island coming up on our show 
on Wednesday. For Jim Woodward and Taylor Williams, this has been Sam Humphreys here on the 73rd Hole Podcast, the official podcast of Golf Oklahoma. And please go follow us on Twitter at the 73rd Hole and on Instagram at 73rd Hole. And please hit that subscribe button. It's absolutely free. It just helps us out. And it's the purple button on Apple and the green button on Spotify. So stay with us here on the 73rd Hole, the official podcast of Golf Oklahoma.